Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to our program, The New Authoritarian Axis, the growing threat to the free world from China, Russia, and Iran. Please welcome Dr. Victoria Coates, Vice President of the Davis Institute for National Security and Foreign Policy at the Heritage Foundation. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the new authoritarian axis, the growing threat to the free world from China, Russia, and Iran, a very timely event, I think, for us to have as news events unfold on a pretty much hour-by-hour -hour basis, the gathering threat from these three countries, and I might even add North Korea into that, that mix as well, is becoming increasingly clear. And from my perspective, we have Beijing at the top basically bankrolling and permitting the nefarious activities of both Russia in Ukraine and Iran throughout the greater, greater Middle East, most dramatically right now in, in Israel. Uh, so I'm very much looking forward to the uh, remarks of our featured guest, Sir Ian Duncan Smith, who is a great friend to the Heritage Foundation. We have been honored to welcome him here many times. I myself have been pleased to meet with him uh, both back when I was a Senate staffer, I think the first Queen Elizabeth was on the throne at that time, uh, it was so long ago, and then also here at, at Heritage. Uh, Sir Ian was first uh, elected to the House of Commons uh, over three decades ago in 1992, then we're dating both of us, and went on to lead the Conservative Party from 2001 to 2003. Uh, I think at Heritage, we've been extremely supportive of the policies he has championed, uh, notably the most radical reforms to British Britain's welfare system since it was created. Uh, he was also a leading voice in the victorious, uh, even glorious 2016 vote leave campaign to free the British people from the shackles of the European Union. In recent years, as the threat from China, as I'm sure he will discuss today, has become clearer. He has been a clarion voice uh, for standing up to Beijing and has for that uh, the honor of having been uh, sanctioned by the Communist Chinese Party. I'm deeply jealous of this honor. Uh, Surian is a man of tremendous principle, a fearless conservative in the tradition of Margaret Thatcher, who of course named, uh, provided the name for our Margaret Thatcher Center for Freedom in the Davis Institute. And he cares passionately about Great Britain, defense of individual, individual liberty, and the future of the Anglo-American alliance, which will never be more important, and it has never been more important than it will be in these coming years as we battle this threat together. Uh, and finally, I also wanted to welcome back uh, the right honorable former Prime Minister Liz Truss, another great friend to the Heritage Foundation, uh, and we are delighted to have you with us today. So with no further ado, Surya and Duncan Smith. Thank you very much indeed for those opening remarks. Um, I think you were far wrong when you said that the last time you met Queen Elizabeth I was on the throne. Uh, I sometimes feel like everything has gone downhill ever since then. But um, what can I say? Uh, being a politician in, uh, in the UK at the moment is an interesting 
interesting subject, but I'm not going to discuss that here today. Today, I really want to talk about what I consider, uh, having watched this over the last couple of years, what I call the growing threat to the free world, which is about uh, authoritarian axis, a new axis of totalitarian states. I want to start by a quote from uh, Margaret Thatcher. Uh, Margaret Thatcher said, <clears throat> Marxists get up early in the morning to further their cause. We must get up even earlier to defend our freedom. And she and Ronald Reagan did exactly that. But what we failed to learn from them, and this is the point I want to make today, is just exactly how you deal with those threats, as we seem to be in disarray at the moment. The issue here today, I think, is to recognize the rise of this new threat, a threat to the free world and all that we stand for, democracy, freedom under the rule of law, governed within the framework of human rights and human dignity. The threat we now face is on a par, I believe, to that which we face during the Cold War and even to the challenges of the 1930s. In plain view and willfully ignored is the growing power and growing number of authoritarian states and the strong linkage between those who govern through autocracy and fear. We all know that despite the denials of the Iranian Republican Guard, the RGC, as sponsors of both Hamas and Hezbollah, they were involved in the act, this brutal act uh, of the attack on uh, innocent Israeli citizens. Importantly, though, they're also close allies of China and Russia, part of an axis, a new axis of totalitarian states, which poses the greatest threat to our principles of democracy, human rights, as I said, and the rule of law. From Beijing in the Far East to Tehran, a China-centered axis is growing stronger, bringing in the other brutal regional authoritarian powers like Myanmar, and even now, uh, as we can see, Syria. At the center of this new totalitarian axis sits China, ruthlessly tying states around the world in through their Belt and Road initiative right across the developing world. Let me just dwell on China for a little bit. The financial power China now wields comes from the free world's astonishing and continuing dependence on China trade. Everything from plastic pots <coughs> to plasma screens. And as we ramp up in the drive for net zero, they are making and selling more and more in China from wind farms, solar arrays, batteries, and electric vehicles. Almost all of these are produced in China and then sold back to us in the free world. Some, like solar arrays, are even mined by slave labor in Xinjiang, a minor detail often hidden from sight when these products are sold. There's a wonderful hypocrisy abroad, which is that those who march on the streets, in particular what we have in the UK as Just Stop Oil, activists and others blaming Western democracies for climate change, while somehow ignoring the huge level of emissions in China. Much lauded electric cars, which these campaigners demand we use, are made almost exclusively from fossil fuels in China. That's why as China builds one coal-fired power station every two weeks, a fact not always celebrated by Just Stop Oil, strangely. So many of the very things that we rely on today, including telephones, computers, come from China. Even the majority of rare earth mines and over 90% of the world's production of rare earth minerals. These, by the way, are those minerals that make up the minute magnets which all of our communication devices rely on and without which we stop. I shouldn't need to restate <coughs> that China has a terrible record of human rights abuses at home, genocide in Xinjiang, slave labor, and forced organ harvesting, not to mention the brutal suppression of democracy, 
campaigners in Hong Kong are being arrested as we speak, and the introduction of a national security law in Hong Kong whilst trashing the Sino-British agreement. It's also a country that has seized and is militarizing the islands of the South China Seas, despite the UN's ruling that they had no rights or historic rights of ownership. And as if that wasn't bad enough, China daily threatens the independent integrity of Taiwan with invasion. Nothing China does is left to chance. And even on top of all of that, these are the things that people debate. The thing they haven't been debating recently is one of the greater threats that China now will be able to wield. Recently, the UK held an international summit, a gathering to discuss the application and risk associated with artificial intelligence. China, let's be clear, is the world's leader in AI. It has created the most extensive Orwellian technological surveillance state that has probably ever existed. AI is used to monitor every aspect of its citizens' daily lives. Cameras recognizing people, reporting back, and linked to networks of other electronic data from credit cards too. <coughs> they are increasingly misusing AI as a tool overseas, with Microsoft recently exposing China's use of AI to target US voters with misinformation. Yet there's a growing threat, which again the West has failed to see, but growing in plain sight. China now has a head start in applying AI to genomics, which poses a significant threat to our collective national security. China is the world leader in genomics, with state-backed institutions like BGI Group, the largest genomics company in the world. These large data sets of DNA represent a strategic resource, as the combination of genomic data and advanced AI will transform the world, but always for the better. The potential military application of these technological <coughs> advances also presents for us and should present a clear challenge. If China dominates AI and genomics, it will wield unprecedented influence over major industries, including, of course, global healthcare. We have now long known that Chinese authorities forcibly collect DNA samples from people in places like Xinjiang and employ AI to analyze that data. Yet what wasn't so clear is that the free world has been giving BGI Group control over the global genomics industry, even as we stand here. BGI developed prenatal tests in partnership with the People's Liberation Army, which are sold in private clinics throughout the world, including the UK. These tests allow China to access the genomic data of both mother and fetus from all over the world, and we have granted them the rights to use that data back in China. How astonishingly short-sighted was that? We now know that 16 academic institutions in the UK have collaborated with China's BGI group. Astonishingly, the authorities see no issue. I will say that the US intelligence services and the US National Security Commission declared on AI that China was using its largest state-linked genomics company, BGI, as an, I quote, a vehicle for mass genomic data collection. Well, that's a start, at least the US is waking up to this. But without proper safeguards across the free world, China's global convergence of AI and genomics poses a significant threat, and allowing China to dominate AI and genomics already represents an existential risk to humanity. So let's now come back to their role in this axis. The point is that this is, with this growing power and capability, China has been creating a new axis in support. 
In March 2023, President Xi Jinping and President Putin met in Moscow, reaffirming China and Russia's no-limits partnership. This was, of course, during a brutal invasion by Russia of Ukraine. China is now the leading partner in this relationship and has a vested interest in Russia succeeding in Ukraine and sees Russia as a vital part of its global plans. The recent agreement between North Korea and Russia was, of course, brokered by China. North Korea now supplies armaments, I suspect many of which actually come from China, particularly artillery shells in return for supplies of much needed energy. This cooperation between Russia, North Korea and China also extends to Iran, a long-standing ally of both Russia and China. Iran is already supporting Russia by supplying it with drones and other dual-use technology. Iran is dominant in the Shia Crescent, which China sees as strategically important as it, where the significant amount of the region's oil and gas reserves remain. China is now becoming an important regional player, working to bring countries in the Middle East, particularly the Gulf, closer to it, loosening ties with the US and Europe. With Russia's intentions elsewhere in Ukraine, China has stepped in, and President Bashar Assad met President Xi in Beijing in September 2023 and agreed a strategic partnership. Syria now has already joined China's Belt and Road Initiative. And here was I thinking that he was a pariah. China also assisted in the normalizing of pre-existing relationships between Tehran and Riyadh, something that didn't seem likely until they stepped in. And many of the Gulf states are also now forging stronger links with China. After the G7 condemned Russia's invasion of Ukraine, China's top security official, Chen Wenjing, flew to Moscow deliberately to openly meet Petrus, head of Russia's Security Council. It was an open, open visit in defiance of the G7. The Kremlin has already agreed to use the Chinese yuan in oil trades and attack the dollar as a petrocurrency. Russian oil is now rebadged, often by Middle Eastern countries, is transacted and sold to China. In the last year, the scale of China's imports from Russia grew, particularly oil and gas, by just under 50%. Put in this context, this attack on Israel serves as a wider purpose for the Axis, Russia in particular. Now, with Israel needing military equipment, Ukraine is rightly concerned that the mood on Capitol Hill, amongst some, has hardened, leaving Ukraine exposed. This, whilst Russia watches the West distracted as debates rage about whether Ukraine should be a priority. From the point of view of the Axis, the byproduct of the attack from Hamas successfully smashed a key hope of the West that, although that through the Abraham Accords, Saudi Arabia and other Middle Eastern nations might normalize relations with Israel. As the reach of this totalitarian access increases, China and its Belt and Road are becoming more critical to this. From genocide to slave labor, the West continues to turn a blind eye to the threat of China, threats which President Xi has always made crystal clear. After all, it's worth reminding ourselves that he has always commented that he sees democracy as a two to three hundred year aberration. Normal government is his government. The free world's post-Cold War complacent assumptions are now under threat as never before. We need to recognize the threat of this new axis and face up to it before it is too late. There is an old adage that when a dictator tells you what they are going to do, historically, it's best genuinely to believe them. It starts with recognizing that the war in Ukraine, the war in Gaza against Hamas, and China's overt threat to invade Taiwan are all of a piece. 
and I repeat that, they are all of one piece. They are linked inexorably through this axis. To, to ignore one of these threats is to multiply the danger in the others. If Ukraine loses or is forced into some weak settlement with Russia, as before in those dreadful Minsk agreements, then it will have been down to the failure of the West to will the means to drive Russia out of Ukraine. This, in turn, will be a stronger signal that the free world will not stand by Taiwan. Now, it's worth remembering, uh, as we do, that Germany is reported today, or over the weekend, and the US have been engaged in talks about how limiting the scale of the support means that Ukraine doesn't get defeated, but maybe going towards some kind of negotiated settlement. I don't agree with that. For those who say we can't afford to support Ukraine if we want to support Taiwan or Israel, I say you can't afford not to. If we don't see it through, then the Axis will have won. Furthermore, the Axis will have clear evidence of what they have believed for some time, that the free world cannot stay the course. Just look at what happened when we withdrew so disgracefully from Afghanistan. China warned Taiwan <clears throat> immediately, literally the day after the flight last one left, that it showed that the free world wouldn't stand with them on the day of reckoning. Ukraine's future becomes Taiwan's and Israel's as well. For even now at home, the West is engaged in a damaging culture war where one group is pitted against the other, smashing tolerance and responsibility in the pursuit of absolute rights. This is tearing Western societies apart, much to the delight of the Axis, and often fermented by them. As their, quotes, useful idiots scream and shout at Western governments, the Axis sees the benefits from a divided West. Since Hamas's attack on Israel on the 7th of October, a number of participants in the marches in the UK, and I understand here in the US as well, have proactively flown Hamas flags, and vile anti-Semitism is again on the march in our streets. An astonishing thought, given what happened all those years ago. The West seems to be losing heart as the arguments over the war in Ukraine mount here in Washington and in other cities in Europe. Having been in Ukraine twice, both last winter and this summer, working with a charity bringing relief to those dispossessed very close to the front. I have seen for myself what the war there means. Thousands are dying to get what we have taken for granted, freedom. If the free world cannot support that cause, what hope is there for any of us? The question is what happens if we let Ukraine fall? Surely, if we had wanted Ukraine to win by now, we could have willed the means and it could have been over. When you see Ukrainians trying to clear minefields at night with bayonets and getting killed in large numbers, all the other internal arguments about spending support given by the USA and others in Europe, including the UK, rather misses the point, doesn't it? What does the US president and his key allies want when it comes to Ukraine and why? After all, despite all the debate and argument, the most vital point is that the problem isn't Ukraine, it's Russia. Are we being intimidated by Russia, whose very mention of their nuclear weapons seems to have some, as in German leadership, calling for a negotiation? How ironic, when the last time they did that, it led to a much, much bigger war. 
I recall under the leadership of Reagan and Thatcher, we stood up to such threats and eventually the Soviet Union backed down. And remember, Soviet Union was a lot more powerful than Russia is today. I remind everybody that as the axis grows, we in the free world cannot afford to diminish. It is a short political walk from Ukraine to Taiwan via Gaza, but the cost will far outstrip what we are even paying now. There are now more states that are not governed by democracy than those that do for the first time since the Second World War. And when the Berlin Wall came down, the free world thought that democracy and freedom had won. We were wrong. The lesson is freedom cannot be taken for granted. We learned about the failure <coughs> in the 1930s of appeasement. And in the Cold War, we understood the importance of strength. As Reagan said, freedom is a fragile thing and is never more than one generation away from extinction. It is not ours by inheritance. It must be fought for and defended constantly by each generation, for it comes only once to a people. Those who have known freedom and then lost it have never known it again. I finish by simply saying this. Freedom isn't free. And if we can't see that in the free world and understand what that means, then what hope is there for all of us, not least of all Ukraine? Thank you. Thank you very much, Sariam, for those extremely robust remarks, very sound remarks. I'm sure that Lady Thatcher would have heartily approved of every word there. Uh, and thank you to everybody for joining us and also for the large numbers who are watching online, including many uh, in the United Kingdom. Uh, welcome to the event today and welcome to the Heritage Foundation. Um, Sri, and I'm going to ask you a, a few uh, uh, questions uh, following up on your, uh, on your remarks this morning. Um, but kicking off on the Ukraine front, uh, you referenced the, uh, the Germans uh, who are now talking to the Biden administration about some sort of uh, peace plan, as it were. Um, the United Kingdom, Poland, the Baltic states uh, have all done a great deal uh, to support Ukraine in their hour of need. The American people have also stepped up the plate with huge levels of, of, of support. Uh, but certainly many, uh, many Americans are asking, and no doubt a lot of Britons are as well, what exactly... Uh, have the Germans and the French done and the big powers of the EU? What, what have they done in support of Ukraine? Have they done enough? Um, can we actually trust Paris and Berlin with regard to mm. their long-term plans for, uh, uh, for Ukraine? They don't exactly have a very good track record when it comes to dealing with the Russians. So if you could uh, give your views on, on, on this, this side this aspect? <clears throat> well, um, I think the best way of putting this is that Europe collectively has done a lot, actually, in terms of supporting Ukraine. Of course, hugely in Eastern Europe, where they all understand what the threat is. Uh, I've been to Lithuania and to Estonia and various other countries around there. And you can see straight away they don't need explaining to them what happens if Ukraine loses. And they put proportionately more resource in than almost any of us have. I think the UK has. I think had an exemplary uh, uh, war so far because we've 
been determined that Ukraine uh, should win and therefore uh, nudging and pushing others to get there. And I'm, I'm, I was proud of Boris when he took the decision and I'm continually proud of my government that they have at least stepped up uh, to make that and to engineer uh, changes. Um, I, I worry, though, that there is a kind of uh, a sense that this is a war that may never end. And that, in a way, describes what you then do. So if you think that's the case, then that's where you go and you look for any way out. Uh, and the problem is, you know, the offensive that Ukraine undertook this year was undertaken, frankly, without enough of the right equipment to be able to break through. Uh, all through the winter, Russia was in open sight laying minefield after minefield. This is now more like the First World War than any war that we think we would ever fight. You know, five miles or so of minefields, impossible to break through. I mentioned bayonets being used to get rid of minefields. You know, young, half-trained Ukrainian soldiers losing their limbs. I was told three days is as long as the, as the most recently trained will survive in the front line because of the lack of their field craft and their skills. Not the ones that have been trained by the UK or America, who very good, but it's the others, because we can't train them all. So <clears throat> I think what happens always is that you know, everyone goes, oh, why are we there? Surely we should be doing something else. We're wasting a lot of money. But this is, this is nothing, the money that we are spending right now, compared to what the cost will be if we fail to do this properly. It's a very simple equation. The free world learns the reasons why that's the case, and then promptly forgets them again and again, and we have these internal arguments. There's no point in being there unless we want Ukraine to succeed, because otherwise it just makes it even worse. So the answer is we must will the means. And I don't care really what other countries say when they start talking about it. I mean, Germany pledged 100 billion, I think it was, uh, towards all this. Um, I haven't seen an awful lot of that come out yet, but maybe, maybe they're hiding it. Been like her German pledges on defense spending uh, yet to materialize, I think. Um, switching gears over to uh, the Israel-Gaza uh, war in, in the aftermath of this savage and barbaric uh, Hamas attacks on the people of Israel. Um, on the streets of London, we've seen uh, large-scale protests practically every weekend over the course of the last uh, <coughs> few weeks. Um, ostensibly pro-Palestine demonstrations. In reality, uh, many of the protesters are openly supporting Hamas. Uh, and uh, I think an investigation by the, uh, the Telegraph in London established that for the Remembrance Day uh, protests by the uh, pro-Palestine uh, movement in London, uh, half of the or organizing groups had uh, links to Hamas. Uh, and you have open support for a proscribed terrorist organization. You have uh, huge levels of anti-Semitism. Uh, Jewish uh, people, uh, many are afraid to go into central London during these, these protests for fear of being targeted, attacked. Uh, it's an astonishing uh, state of affairs when you have the statue of Winston Churchill barricaded in order to prevent pro-Palestinian demonstrators from climbing on top of it or vandalizing the statue of Churchill. Uh, the Cenotaph uh, Memorial has to be uh, barricaded away from the protesters every single Saturday in the heart of London, uh, the most sacred war memorial uh, in, in the UK. And, and it's as though uh, London is being occupied every Saturday by 
mm. by vast mobs of Islamist extremists. Um, what should the British government be doing in order to uh, stop what is happening here? Because it is a, it's a culture of fear that we're seeing now on the streets of London, fear, intimidation, some cases <coughs> of uh, violence. Uh, and mm. the, the government seems to be uh, powerless in the face of this. There is an action being taken. Suella Braven, the former Home Secretary, wanted uh, action taken. She described these marches, protests rightly, as hate marches. Um, what, what does the government need to do in order to, to deal with this, this situation? Because I, I think it is, it's astonishing that you have the biggest city in Europe effectively being, uh, being occupied every weekend by uh, tens of thousands, even over 100,000 uh, uh, Islamist extremists, supporters of Hamas, many of whom hate Britain as much as they hate Israel. Well, first of all, can I just say that uh, we were on the aircraft coming over here, so sadly I wasn't able to join it, but there was a march in central London this Sunday uh, uh, against anti-Semitism, and that got 100,000 people. The silent majority are horrified at what's going on. Uh, and as for some of them, what I used to describe as useful idiots uh, who go along chanting things they don't understand, when they chant from the river to the sea, that means the extermination of Jews in Palestine. It means nothing other than that. Why do I know that? Well, Hezbollah's head said exactly that. He said what it was about. And Hamas have made it very clear that's what it means. And yet still these people go chanting it as though there's nothing wrong. I have a Jewish sister-in-law who said to me that she's never felt more fearful living in the UK than she does at the moment. That is shameful. We are a democracy, and people have the right to march, and I would stand for that all the time. But your rights always have to be tempered somewhere with responsibilities. If people like that are feeling threatened, then there needs to be some element of the police saying this is a threat in a way, and therefore we're going to limit the amount of time that people march. We're going to limit when they march. When they marched on, you know, we had the, the November the 11th, and Remembrance Sunday fell on the same weekend, interestingly enough. Uh, and uh, in the UK, it's a very big deal, uh, Remembrance uh, Week. And those two dates are very special for soldiers, ex-soldiers like me and others who may be sitting in the audience. Uh, and I um, listened to uh, a football pundit, Gary Lineker, who is notorious for posting anything that seems to uh, virtue signal to uh, anybody that hates democracy, it seems to me that and the structure of government. But anyway, that by the by, uh, I wasn't getting into a specific argument with him. I just simply said, because he had said they should march, why not? It, you know, it's about remembrance. And I said, um, I posted something, not thinking very much of it. And I said, actually, you've got this wrong. Remembrance uh, that weekend, that Saturday, because it's the 11th, is a very special day. And it's a special day to remember the sacrifices of those who have gone before us that made so that we can live this freedom and that we have the chance to have free speech and everything else. And for one day in the year, surely that should be left for us to remember those. You know, I have a friend who never came back from Northern Ireland. So we want to remember all that. And I just posted it and left it at that. Within 24 hours, you had 5 million people that got onto that tweet. I'm not that popular. <laughs> so uh, it was just massively agreeing and furious that this was happening. The majority in Britain are deeply unhappy about this, as I'm sure they are here in the US as well. 
but they get on and they go about their lives because that, that's not what they're doing. But I do simply say, the government and the police need to sort this out. How many marches do you need on the same subject within the same limited space? The answer is freedom uh, to march does come with responsibilities, and we need to make sure we tie up the responsibility. Uh, thank you for that uh, very robust answer. And uh, yeah, I have to uh, agree that um, Gary Lineker does say some awfully stupid things. Uh, and uh, uh, the fact that you have 5 million views on your, your tweet responding to Lineker's latest uh, rant um, <laughs> says a great deal. Uh, with regard to the, uh, the threat posed by Iran, after, after all, Hamas could not have carried out its barbaric terrorist attacks without the support of the Iranian dictatorship, the world's biggest state sponsor of terror. Uh, with regard to British government policy, uh, at the moment, the uh, IRGC, uh, the Revolutionary Guard Corps, they're still not um, proscribed as, as a terrorist uh, movement by, by the British government. <clears throat> um, the Prime Minister has come under a lot of pressure to take action on this, this issue, and rightly so. Also, uh, the, the UK government remains wedded to trying to revive the JCPOA, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, the uh, disastrous Iran nuclear deal, which I think uh, President Trump rightly withdrew from. Um, what, what, where, where do you see the, the British government moving in the coming months with regard to the, the rising threat from Iran, also domestically as well? And I think the, the head of MI5 uh, recently uh, uh, delivered remarks uh, saying that, that Iran was a huge threat to British national security. Uh, and Iran also is directly involved in fueling uh, some of the protests on the streets of London by pro-Palestine, pro-Hamas organizations. So what action needs to be taken on the Iran front? <clears throat> well, uh, it's very simple, really. We should prescribe the RGC. It's as simple as that. <clears throat> We're almost out of touch with our allies. You know, America's done it. Most of the European Union has done it. Uh, and yet, when you push this, and uh, this will know very, very well what I mean, having been Foreign Secretary and, of course, Prime Minister, um, the Foreign Office put up a hell of a fight uh, over this and say that, you know, oh, be careful because uh, we'll lose our influence. What influence? I mean, really? Uh, the recent release of that. No, um, the recent release of the prisoners that they held, the hostages, really, uh, uh, Nazanin Zaghari Radcliffe was one, wasn't done because we had influence. It's because we ended up paying money over to them for an old debt. You know, let's be honest about it. That, that's the shocking tale of this. And um, influence doesn't exist if the other side is uh, what they are, which is a dictatorship that refuses to accept they, any, they can be uh, constrained in any sense or whatever. So the IRGC, not only that, by the way, there are two banks, uh, Iranian banks in London. And, you know, where does their money go? Uh, why are they still there? Uh, so, yeah, we should prescribe them, just like we have done uh, uh, elsewhere. Uh, and we should seize the assets while we're at it. And until the West unites together on these threats, the problem is they get away. And it happened, really, with lots of... Uh, uh, Russian money as well, which is now finally uh, being frozen, although I think it ought to be seized to pay for the cost of uh, the reparations on Ukraine as and when that time comes, but that's a personal view. But yeah, no, we should prescribe the IRGC. They're a, 
a terrible threat. And by the way, at home in Iran, thousands are being executed, literally as we sit here now, simply for protesting against the terrible acts of the mullahs. I mean, where's our influence on that? Uh, exactly. And, and should the, the UK uh, completely walk away from the uh, JCPOA and, yes. and just, just abandon it? Yeah. Yes. It's a disaster. We, we hardly agree with that, that position. Uh, and uh, uh, the issue of immigration, border security, uh, a huge political issue in the United States, uh, uh, a very uh, major issue, of course, in the United Kingdom uh, and will play a big role in the, the forthcoming uh, UK general election, likely to be uh, next year. Uh, and uh, on the subject of the, the small boats crisis, uh, large numbers of uh, illegal migrants crossing the channel um, from France into the United Kingdom, that's an ongoing uh, uh, crisis. Uh, coupled at the same time with large numbers of legal uh, migrants coming into Britain, I think the latest figures, about 750,000 or so, uh, have entered into the UK over the last year legally. Uh, and that's a city the size of Liverpool, uh, for example. So we're talking about large numbers. And this is a, it's a growing problem, of course, for the, for the Conservative uh, government. Uh, in your view, what needs to be done to address both uh, the high levels of illegal and legal migration into, into the UK? Well, <clears throat> divide the two. Legal migration is where businesses have applied for, received the right visas, and people come to work in the UK. So that's been a function that's been going on for years. However, the net figure is more coming in than, than leaving. Uh, and I think um, the government is now already doing some things that are going to up the, the base level that you can earn uh, before you can come in. But one of the big problems, I think, for, uh, for legal migration is the nature, I think, sometimes of what goes on in the UK. So um, let's take social services right now. We have a social services system that is absolutely desperately needs overhauling. Right now, I've visited other countries that do this far better than we do. They use technology to monitor people in their homes, to make sure they know, therefore, how they are, what they're doing. It keeps them in their homes, gets them out of hospital quicker. Uh, and then if they need specific support and assistance, they can detail a qualified individual to get there quickly, to check to see whether they need to go into hospital or whatever it happens to be. So their quality of life is improved. In the UK, we still seem to hire people on very low wages who then harassed as they try and visit different people in the community with a 15-minute slot, which they often miss. They can't park sometimes in the streets that they want. This system um, just literally constantly needs more people to do it. But because the, the level of wages and salaries for what are basically very low-skilled individuals is very low, therefore what happens is that a lot of the British soldiers won't do that job because it's not uh, well enough paid. And so the problem you've got is the draw factor coming in is far too great. I, I remember during the Brexit debates, I had a meeting with a man from Belgium. The, he owns a potato factory. <laughs> it sounds a bit peculiar. Uh, but potato factory. So in other words, if you were in the UK and go to the freezer section to buy uh, some potato waffles, you know, processed potatoes or chips, not that you'd ever do that, I'm sure. Uh, if you pull the bag out, <laughs> it'll have the name of the supermarket on it. They're all his. He has cornered the whole of the market, bar Lidl's, all over the UK.
He tells a business of 400 million, 500 million euros a year. And he said to me, I said, how is it you've beaten all the British competition that you now dominate in here? And he said, it's very simple. He said, I love the UK. He said, you eat more potatoes per person than any other place in the world. He said, and you still quaintly eat them in their jackets, which is just bizarre to people like me. But he said, uh, he said um, I beat them because when I took the company over, I realized that I wouldn't get by just by having low uh, uh, you know, trained labor. I then literally shut the factory down, and I invested in nothing else but technology to be able to produce, produce at higher levels of, of percentage the product. And we fired, we sacked about three, two-thirds of the workforce. He said, what's interesting, uh, they trained the rest to manage that equipment. He said, within three, four years, we then employed more people than we had employed before. They were better trained, uh, they earned more money, and we uh, had more market access and could beat anybody else in the world. We do that all the time. He said, when we look at the UK, much as we love you, he said, we think of you as the cheap labor capital of the Western world. You only do your forecast for one year. It's the five years that exist. You have to train people and make sure they can do the job better and pay more. That draw factor is really what we have to do is make sure businesses now really do recognize they want higher skilled people. And you'll have a lower number coming in, but they will actually be adding value. Uh, free trade. Uh, th there were high hopes uh, uh, for a US-UK uh, trade deal. Uh, the Biden administration has not exactly been uh, very helpful and cooperative on this, uh, on this, this issue. Uh, are, you, are you still hopeful for a deal to be put in place in the course of the next uh, a few years, potentially, if there's a new US administration? Uh, and uh, on the, the broader issue of, of Brexit, uh, and thank God for Brexit, I mean, we, we here at Heritage, of course, have been uh, huge supporters of uh, British sovereignty and self-determination. Uh, and, uh, and we believe that uh, a sovereign Britain is uh, in the interest not only uh, of the British people, but also for, uh, for the United States and the rest of the free world as well. Uh, on, on the Brexit front, um, has Britain taken full advantage of uh, its, uh, its newfound uh, freedoms? Uh, does more need to be done in terms of throwing off the shackles of, of the EU? And uh, when, is, uh, when is all the EU legislation going to be removed from the, the books uh, in the UK? And when will Britain be fully free from European courts as well? Uh, right, there's a series of loaded questions in there, so let me see if I can <clears throat> unload them slightly. So let's start with, has the UK done as much as it should do? Well, the answer is obviously not, uh, because there's still more to do. Uh, the government has made uh, a progression on lots of things. One of the big areas that we left for was trade deals, but the other area that we often forget about is to take control back of our regulations, which are critical. When we talk about an economy doing better, doing well, being competitive, a huge amount is hidden away in the regulations that we impose on businesses and on people to go about their daily lives and do what they can do. And um, I, I wrote a paper for the government oh, about two and a half years ago called the Tigger Report. <laughs> uh, it's, the, it's the Task Force for Innovation, Growth, and Regulatory Reform. And we called it Tigger, and I gave it to the then Prime Minister Boris Johnson. <laughs> Who immediately replied, uh, uh, who then quoted to me um, 
Winnie the Pooh at that point, which I thought was productive in one way. But the point was that um, <coughs> the, uh, the point was we were making, you need to reset the whole nature of how we make regulations in the UK and bring it back to the old common law principles that exist in the UK. And that is to say, regulators shouldn't intervene until they can demonstrate critically that something damaging is happening that needs them to intervene. Otherwise, the principle is get on and do what you have to do. Whereas in the European Union, they try and forecast well ahead about what might go wrong, what could go wrong, and what would then, so then regulate uh, according to stop those things happening. And I think that then locks down an awful lot of uh, businesses' ability to be flexible and to, uh, to be competitive, which is important. So in terms of can we do more, yes, we need to do much more regulation. And getting rid of more regulations, the government has got a list of what it's now going to get rid of, but I'm one of those that thinks um, we need to be a little more ambitious uh, in that. When it comes to trade, uh, Liz, of course, was the trade secretary uh, for a while and did very well in getting us a bunch of trade deals, including setting the terms for the uh, Trans-Pacific Partnership, uh, also Australia, New Zealand, and the various others. So we have been making some progress in the trade deals around the world. I'm excited about the idea of the UK back in the Far East again with a proper trade deal, with the AUKUS stuff, because we're as much relevant to the, for, to the Far East as we ever were, and I think we have a role in trying to open up India as well, uh, because that acts as a huge counterbalance to China, uh, if we can help work with them. So these are all reasonable ambitions that have been opened up for us since we left the European Union. And we have all these criticisms, oh, you'll not make a single trade deal because you're just a single country and it won't make any difference. Well, Europe doesn't make very many trade deals now because nobody really wants to do those trade deals with them because they're so restrictive and they demand so much. Uh, and the talks with America have stalled for them. I think we will get a trade deal with the states. Either perhaps some of that stuff can be done state, UK to state. There may be some flexibility in that. <coughs> but. Um, the government at the end of the day in the US has got to decide that it's in their interest to have a trade deal. And I think it is in the US's interest to have a trade deal with the UK. There's huge amounts in common with us. After all, we both invest more in each other's countries than any other country. So the UK is the leading investor in the USA, and the USA is the leading investor in the UK. There's got to be some reason for that. Could it be common law? Could it be that we speak the same language? Could it be that we've got linkages going back a long way uh, and that we reach the, roughly the similar conclusions on big issues uh, in the same way. Uh, and I think that's why tying those links closer will be better for us. And by the way, I always have a very simple view about the world, which is the world is a safer place when the UK and the US are together uh, working for freedom. It's as simple as that. Very, very well said. And uh, do you fear for the future of Brexit if, uh, if there's a change of government and you have the socialists uh, coming in bearing in mind that practically every Labour MP voted against uh, Brexit. And uh, did you, are you, you concerned about what may happen uh, if uh, Britain is led by a different party with, uh, although they're making pledges to protect Brexit, but the reality is that uh, the overwhelming uh, majority of their, uh, their MPs and their leadership, of course, have been adamantly against Brexit. Um, yeah, I think there is a threat, obviously, that uh, a government that wants for some reason to sacrifice everything that we have been achieving already since leaving Brexit, the trade deals would be a very good example, 
uh, uh, a lot of the regulatory stuff, which may be moving business forward, all those sort of things. Couldn't say they think they're better off in Europe. But I, uh, yeah, they'd have to be pretty stupid to want to do that, because what you'll then have is another fight, and what you'll also have is a huge amount of unnecessary change. I mean, lots of people who in, were diehards and didn't want Brexit, and they're still around, um, they, uh, they constantly say, look how bad things are going, look how bad things are going. The recent economic figures show that the UK's done rather well, and actually uh, is at the top of the league of European countries. Uh, its economy is growing, or has been growing faster than uh, pretty much every country. I think France uh, was just slightly ahead. But other than that, you know, look at Germany. It's been in recession now for over two quarters. Uh, uh, so what, was it, did they leave the European Union, or was it us that left the European Union? I can't remember. So the point is really that there are a lot of nonsense talked. When you boil it down to the simple facts, we don't, you know, as an independent country, allied and friends with uh, compatriots across the European Union, that is a good relationship. Uh, and we have no intention of trying to run the European Union. And I think, therefore, you know, we've made a decision. We've left. We now need to make the most of it. And I think we can do. And uh, getting beyond these crises that have existed would be a great thing. I think that, by the way, the election is not over. Um, I don't think this is 1996. Uh, I think that uh, my personal views, I think the polling is a mile wide and an inch deep. And I think once people really know uh, what there is on offer, I think uh, you'll see a big shift. But it would be good to uh, have a Republican administration back here as well. Uh, excellent. And we have uh, time just for, I think, maybe two questions from the, uh, from the audience, if that's OK, Sirian. Uh, and um, I, yeah, we have a gentleman actually right at the, the back over there. Yeah. Thank you. You, you mentioned uh, immigration and you touched on legal, but you didn't touch oh, yeah. illegal. I don't know if you have any thoughts about Britain could do. Yeah, the uh, legal migration, I suddenly realized when I finished it, <laughs> I hadn't mentioned it. Uh, illegal migration is a big deal in the UK. It's a big deal here. I mean, look at, what is it, six million or something, as opposed to across the... Seven million, I think. Seven million now. Is it going up fast? It's inflation. Um, so in the UK, the big issue is illegal migration. Not all just coming by boats, but lots of them coming by boats and others finding other ways to get in here. Uh, and the problem is really, I think, our legal processes around that once they're in. Uh, the government has worked on the principle that if you come illegally, you should leave uh, straight away. I think sometimes in our arguments on this, and by the way, the Rwanda flights are a physical manifestation of getting control over illegal migration. Let's not be uncertain about that. We have promised this, and therefore we have to deliver this. Uh, and there are ways to do it, and the government's looking at them right now, uh, which uh, may mean they won't be challenged. But the point I would make about this is that First of all, illegal migration is incredibly dangerous. We've had people dying in the channel because the boats are rickety. They pay a lot of money to come over, and, and then they don't go. But we also we sort of beat up on ourselves because we allow people to say, oh, well, look, you know, if you, don't, if you send them off, you're breaking all your international agreements and treaties and all the rest of it, and that makes you a pariah of the Western world. I was reminding someone the other day, uh, France just sent two illegal migrants straight back to Syria, I think it was didn't even bother to send them to a third country. Denmark's been sending people back for a while because they changed their laws. Sweden is changing its laws to do the same thing. Germany's talking about calling it a day with the uh, Court of Human Rights. Uh, and Italy is ready to go. And 
My point is, no, we're not alone, actually. What we are is trying to find a solution in a reasonable way, and I think we have, and I think we should get about it and do it, because as soon as Denmark said, you're off, migration, illegal migration to Denmark just collapsed, uh, because they said, we're going to be sending you back. And I think that's the key. So the government is going to try and do this, but I think we have to get it done. We have to get it done in all our countries, because what's going on at the moment is going to make life very difficult for people inside our countries whose own incomes then get driven down. Uh, because people who are working illegally, if they've come in illegally, will take any old pay. And the result is those who might be doing the job can't afford to do it any longer because they've got other commitments. So getting control of it is actually humane. It's not inhumane, as people accuse us of. Great. And uh, I think, um, yeah, gentleman over here in the front. Let's keep question. Together, no, uh, yeah, actually, uh, let, let's take let's take um, two questions uh, at the same at the same time. So, yeah, so over there, and, and then also here in the front, and we'll, we'll try and get to you so in a minute. Yeah. So thank you. Uh, what do you expect of the G6, G7 meeting in uh, Germany and the G20 meeting in Indonesia taking place? Do you expect some? Uh, Interesting outcomes from I, I those really the G7 you. meeting in uh, Germany and the G20 meeting coming up in Indonesia. Any right. interesting uh, outcome you expect? Yeah. Also, like the positions of uh, France and Canada on the matter you discussed. Okay. Okay. So G7, G20, uh, and uh, over here, yeah. Oh, uh, thank you, Syrian. Just on your point about the silent majority and uh, British Jews who feel a threat, what commitments do you think the Conservatives should be making going into the election campaign next year to those people? Um, you know, but what can they, should they be able to expect from a Conservative government after the next election? Uh, yep, go ahead. Uh, <clears throat> let me just deal with the uh, G7, G20. I mean, the big question, the two big questions that exist at the moment are obviously a migration question, which is how do we resolve this across the board so that, uh, you know, there's greater investment in those areas where people come from. Um, you know, let's face it, Africa has one of the youngest uh, uh, populations now in the world, and they want work, and they're looking for work, and therefore it's important and incumbent on us to challenge what the Chinese are doing and actually to invest in these countries, try and develop what they're doing that allows them to stay and to work in those countries rather than constantly looking uh, for ways to uh, enter into Europe or the United States to, uh, to find work as well at the same time. So I think there's a two elements, A, restricting it, making it less, uh, less valuable to them, and B, then saying, well, we need to do more to make sure that these countries develop and get rid of a lot of the, uh, you know, sort of criminal abuse that takes place among some of the governments in terms of their, their own embezzlement of their funds and that these should be properly spent. The, the, the question here, um, and, and the, other, the second part of it, of course, is, is Ukraine, uh, massively important, and Gaza right now. And it's very important that uh, the case is made by the US and the UK and others of our allies, who are both either in the G7 or in the G20, that actually uh, what is going on there has to be stopped, and that those, uh, in the case of Ukraine, need to have their proper governance and their freedom back, uh, and everybody should be committed to that. And we should be challenging the axis on this completely, and the same goes with Gaza. Israel's right to defend itself is still there, absolutely critical, and those terrorists that carried out that attack, they do have to be hunted down and stopped because this will just repeat itself all over again. And those who say it shouldn't happen need to tell us what should be done in its place. 
because I don't see them giving up in any shape or form. Um, uh, on the pledges, well, I'm not going to write the manifesto because I'm not in government. And I'll be honest with you, just a small secret, I'm not likely to be in government either. Um, by the way, I, I don't know why. But um, the, the, the main point is that uh, we have to recognize that what we need to do is reestablish our balance where we represent those who are not the ones that shout, that aren't the ones that sit on social media spending, for the most part, their whole time commenting uh, and attacking everybody using vile abuse. It is actually what I refer to the silent majority. The majority get about their lives, and what they want is a well-governed country. They want people to have rights, but they want to recognize they're linked to their responsibilities. They don't want to be imposed on by other people's views, and they want their streets safe, and they want the police, therefore, out arresting people that are criminal, not bending the knee to them uh, when they protest over ludicrous. And by the way, I make the point, interesting, I spotted the other day, the Black Lives Matter over here actually uh, supported the Hamas position uh, after they did it. And all those, I say, who, as again, the useful idiots have bent their knees, I wonder now they realize what they were bending their knees to. Yes, we want decency in policing, but we also want the police not to fear the fact that they are there to enforce the law, which is critical. In fact, uh, Lord Howard here was, in fact, a very successful Home Secretary, who I think used to make the same point that that if you get the criminals off the streets, the streets are safer for other people. And it's the other people that worry me, and I think we should be standing up for them. I seem to remember Secure Starmer taking the knee before BLM, uh, and uh, which uh, speaks volumes. Uh, I'm afraid we're actually out of, out of time. Uh, and uh, a huge thank you to Sir Ian uh, for your tremendous remarks uh, today, both uh, with the speech and in our, our discussion. And you've been a great friend of Heritage, you should, you should certainly be back, I think, in government. No, um, <laughs> Foreign Secretary, for example. Um, and uh, uh, you've been a you know, tremendous uh, friend over many, many years. We're most grateful to host you again here at Heritage. And also, uh, thank you to our British uh, parliamentary delegation who are here with us. And uh, thank you also to everyone who's joined us in person and also online. Big thank you to Sir Ian and to everyone for joining us today. Thank you.